turn in your copy of Scripture, if you will, to Ezekiel, the third chapter. This is page 822 in the hymn, in the, in the Bibles that are in the shelf in front of you. <clears throat> you can identify with Ezekiel as we left him last time sitting still for seven days, overwhelmed. And there's more yet to come. And it seems like we find him down on his face again, able only to be lifted by the Spirit of the Lord. Maybe you've had that situation yourself. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 22. The hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Get up and go out to the plain, and there I will speak to you. So I got up and went out to the plain, and the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. Then the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. He spoke to me and said, Go shut yourself inside your house, and you, son of man, they will tie with ropes. You will be bound so that you cannot go out among the people. I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them, though they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Whoever will listen to him, listen, and whoever will refuse to let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Now the Son of Man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you finish this, lie down again, this time on your right side. And bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you forty days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from, side to the, from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentil, millet and spilt, spelt, Put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out one-sixth of a hind of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them. Then I said, not so, sovereign Lord, I have never defiled myself. From my youth until now, I have never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. 
No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said. I will let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. He then said to me, Son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with a sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair and tuck them away in the folds of your garment. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them. A fire will spread from there to the whole house of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the city of the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children, and children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, Sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile visions, images, and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die in, <clears throat> of the plague. Or One of the most uh, helpful pieces of advice I learned as a young parent was simply this. In communicating with your kids, say what you mean and mean what you say. You see, if your kids are going to trust you, they must trust what, they, what you tell them. You see, your words matter. They must believe what you say. Now, this has all sorts of implications. For one thing, it means you must be careful to make good on your promises. Uh, don't say you're going to play catch with your son on Saturday and then decide that you're going to go with the guys to play golf instead. No, that's not good. On the other hand, it also means that you, be ha you have to be careful not to make idle threats to your kids. Uh, you're driving down the road with the kids in the back seat and Johnny hits Susie and you say, Johnny, if you don't say you're sorry to your sister right now, I'm going to stop this car. You're going to get out and you're going to walk home. Of course, Johnny's only four years old and you're on a family vacation in Nebraska. No, it's not going to work. Or perhaps more realistically, uh, don't tell your daughter that if she doesn't get in bed in two minutes, you're going to give her a spanking and then not do it. That's not good either. 
You see, unfulfilled promises or idle threats. Either way, you've undermined your credibility. The kids come to understand that your words really don't mean anything. Now, this, of course, is one of the reasons why many parents have to resort to raising their voices with their kids. You see, they have to yell simply because the kids have come to learn that you really don't mean what you say until the sound level is raised several decibels. You see, that's just the way it works, and they know it. Both unfulfilled promises, idle threats, they have the same effect. They cripple your authority. They shatter your credibility. Now, again, you have to communicate clearly. You have to say what you mean. And in discipline, as the child matures, it's important to put the responsibility for the consequence of the decision on the child himself. I mean, you don't want to exasperate your children. So you must explain what is required and set out clearly what the consequences will be for disobedience. And I think it's helpful to give an adequate warning. We use the counting method. I'm going to count and you must start picking up your toys by the time I get to three or there will not be a bedtime story. Now, we counted a lot. And in fact, uh, Susan's father used to say, our kids are going to be very good in math. You must say what you mean, and then you must mean what you say. And if your children know that you mean what you say, then they can trust you more fully. And when they trust you, they will be more likely to listen to what you have to say and obey you. Now, that, I say, was very helpful advice to me. And it's helpful for more than just parenting, you know. It's important for all our relationships. I mean, what did Jesus say? Let your yes be yes, and your no be no. And this approach to truthfulness and communication reflects what we see practiced by the Lord God himself. As we read the book of Ezekiel, we see that the Lord God, you see, is dealing with defiant children. Now, the stakes are high, very high, but the principles here are just the same. The children of the house of Israel, they've been called by the Lord God to obey him. And he promised them great blessing if they did, but he also threatened severe punishment if they refused to listen. And here in Ezekiel, they're confronted with the clear truth that they had not listened. They had become stubborn and obstinate. So what is the Lord to do? Uh, will his words mean anything? Can they be trusted? Or were all these threats just idle talk? Words without meaning. Or to use another image of the situation, the people of Israel are not just like children, excuse me. They're also like a small uh, vassal state that's been rescued from danger by the king of a mighty empire. And they've entered into a treaty pledging subservience in exchange for protection and provision. And it's a treaty. It's an agreement. It's a covenant that spells out the consequences of obedience or disobedience in very clear terms. And the question is, will the terms of that covenant mean anything? Will the Lord be true to his word? This this great and awesome God that's introduced to us in Ezekiel's uh, chariot throne vision in chapter one. This God revealed himself as a personal God who speaks in chapters two and three. And now as we move to chapter four, we see that this God who speaks means what he says for good or for ill, in his promises and in his threats. 
And Ezekiel here will communicate a message of doom to this people. This people who have broken God's covenant with them. They will get what they deserve. And they will get what God had promised. But we'll see as well that the Lord's faithfulness to His word of judgment offers us hope that He will also be faithful to His word of mercy. So I invite you to jump back into the book of Ezekiel with me. Last week, we uh, left the prophet sitting among the exiles in Babylon. He was overwhelmed by this vision of the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. The Lord spoke to him and commissioned him to speak his words to, to the people of Israel. Eat this scroll, he says. Take it to heart and then speak my words to these people. And Ezekiel did. And for a week, he was overwhelmed. He was traumatized by the experience. And at the end of seven days, the Lord meets with him again. And again, he was confronted by this this vision of the glory of the Lord. And then immediately we encounter something we do not expect. This prophet who's been commissioned to speak for God is told to go shut himself up in his house. And there he would be tied up with ropes so he can't get out among the people. And the Lord himself would make his tongue stick to the roof of his mouth, rendering him speechless. A speechless prophet. Now, there's a paradox about as bad as a preacher with laryngitis. Now, if I had served as the Lord's director of communications, this is not the way I would have gone about it. I'd have put uh, Ezekiel in the middle of the market with a megaphone. But no, here he is tied up in his house, unable to speak. Go figure. Just remember, the Lord God is beyond us. His ways may be uh, strange, even inscrutable to be uh, to us. So be it. He is God after all. Well, in fact, we don't know if this binding was meant literally or figuratively. And and in fact, his inability to speak wasn't absolute. In some way, his silence continues for the next seven years, for it's only after he receives the news that Jerusalem has been destroyed that we read in chapter 33, verse 22, that my mouth was opened and I was no longer silent. But in the meantime, we know that the prophet does, in fact, speak from time to time. But it's only God's words that he speaks. Chapter three, verse 27. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth. And you shall say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In a sense, you see, it is it is Ezekiel as Ezekiel who is silent. He no longer engages in small talk with his neighbors. He no longer uh, banters with casual conversation about sports or arguments about politics. No, Ezekiel will speak only when the Lord God gives him something to say. That's when he will speak. And so when he speaks, everyone would know it was the Lord's word that was coming from his mouth. And there's something else at work here, I think. In chapter 3, verse 26, we read that you will be silent and unable to rebuke them, though they are a rebellious house. Now, the word rebuke here is often used in legal contexts, And I think a good case can be made for translating the words like this. You will be silent and be unable to act as a as a mediator. Because they are a rebellious house. In other words, it could be here that the Lord is preventing Ezekiel from acting like Moses. Moses, who spoke on behalf of the sinful people of Israel, pleading with God to have mercy upon them. No, that time has passed. 
Ezekiel's silence represents God's refusal to hear any prayers of mercy for this people. They are now ripe for judgment. And this explains why Ezekiel's mouth is opened later, only after God's wrath has been poured out on Jerusalem. Now, we can assume that when Ezekiel returned from this uh, mind-blowing encounter with the glory of God, the people around him recognized that something pretty earth-shattering had happened to this guy. I mean, the talk quickly spread among the exiles. Did you hear what happened to Ezekiel? I mean, he seems to have almost gone mad. I mean, later in the book, we read in chapter 33, verse 30, As for you, son of man, your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. But they didn't seem to take him seriously. It was more like entertainment to them. So from this point on, everyone was watching him to see what he did. His every action becomes a means of communication. Ezekiel himself becomes a sign to the people. And in chapters 4 and 5, Ezekiel engages in some rather bizarre behavior that we might call prophetic charades. Prophetic charades. You know the game charades? We play it often at our house. It's a game where you have to make people guess a word or a phrase by using actions instead of words. Well, this sort of prophetic pantomime is common among the prophets of Israel, but Ezekiel is certainly the king of them all. In our passage in chapters 4 and 5, we see not one, but three acts of this sort. And the first is what we might call the drama of the besieged city. Now, imagine this for a moment. Ezekiel is told to take a clay tablet, oh, something like this, probably softer clay so that he could write in it. And and he was told to, to... represent something that that reminds people of the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps it was a map of the city walls, perhaps showing the the temple in Jerusalem. They could see this represents Jerusalem. And then he was told to do what we should do as kids. We'd make little we'd have little toy soldiers and we set them up in a battle scene. And so Ezekiel has the city there and then he sets up a battle scene, which they quickly recognize as a siege of the city. With battlements around and and the the army surrounding the city. It would have been very easy for them to recognize that. That was a common form of warfare. uh, warfare, And many of them had been involved in the siege in Jerusalem just uh, five years before. Then he was told to take an iron pan. He said, now now iron is is hard. It's, It's impenetrable. And he's to hold it up. Facing the temple, the, 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 the map of the city there. It was like an iron wall. And soon it would be evident that Ezekiel was representing the Lord, the God of Israel. But in fact, he was not with them. He was against them. On the other side of this iron wall. In fact, the Lord God was the enemy of the city besieging it. Now, that message would have been shocking to them. I mean, after all, they were the sons of Abraham. I mean, hadn't the Lord promised that he would bless Abraham's seed and he would give them this good land as their possession? They were in exile, yes, but it was only for a short time, they thought. Soon they'd be back in the land. Yahweh, the Lord God, would see to it. He was their God. They were his children. They knew that they would soon be back. The land was theirs. 
And this very attitude is expressed later in the book. Son of man, the people living in those ruins in the land of Israel are saying Abraham was only one man, yet he possessed the land. But we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as our possession. But the Lord doesn't see it that way. Therefore, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, since you eat meat with the blood still in it and look to your idols and shed blood, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you do detestable things, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Should you then possess the land? No, being sons of Abraham was not enough. They must also share the faith of Abraham, a faith that puts their trust in the God of Abraham with a trust that includes a heart to obey that God. For he is a righteous and holy God. That's scene one in this first act. And scene two, Ezekiel's little theatrical display gets a little more wacky. He decide, he's told to go and lie down on his left side. So Ezekiel lies down on his left side. And he's told to do this for 390 days, it says. Now, it couldn't have been that he does it completely continuously for 390 days. I suspect that he probably got down in this position oh, an hour or two, a certain set time, and people would wander into his house and say, let's go see what that crazy man Ezekiel's doing today. And day after day, he'd be lying on his left side. 390 days. 390 days representing the years of Israel's sin, perhaps going back to the time of Solomon's temple, when idolatry began to, to penetrate and, and creep into the, the worship of Israel. And then he was told to get up from his left side and go to his right side. Forty days this time on his right side. Forty days representing 40 years of punishment. Forty years was the time of a whole generation, just like the generation that had come out of Egypt uh, and, and were punished in the desert for 40 years. A whole generation was wiped out. A whole generation would be punished by the Lord in exile. Forty days. Forty years. Ezekiel's a little weird, but they might have got the message. He was in some sense to bear their sin, it says. Now, it wasn't to bear their sin to take away their sin. No, he was bearing the suffering of their sin. You see, in this little exercise, he wasn't suffering instead of them or on their behalf. He was suffering with them. He was symbolizing the awful consequence of th that their sin would incur. And perhaps I think lying on his side might suggest a forced Sabbath of the land. Deserted and desolate. Then Ezekiel engages in a second prophetic act. Now, this one it speaks both of the suffering that the people would experience and the defilement that it would entail. He's told to take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for himself. Now, I'm no baker, but that clearly is a very strange mixture with which to make bread. Uh, perhaps that suggests that during the siege of a city, food would be so scarce they would have to put together whatever they could find. One medieval rabbi actually tried to duplicate this recipe and found that it was not fit for dogs. Anyway, it was pretty bad bread. And the portions weren't very good either. 
He says, weigh out 20 shekels of food to eat each day and eat it at set times. 20 shekels. That's about eight ounces of bread. That's not much. Six, I think it's six mini bagels. That's it. A whole day's ration. And then it says, also measure out a sixth of a hint of water and drink it at set times. That's a little more than this. Less than two pints. That's it. Day's ration. 390 days living on that per day. Just enough to keep a 30-year-old man alive, but barely. You see, Ezekiel, he doesn't prophesy Israel's doom from a distance. He's not sitting comfortably in his armchair railing against the sins of the people. No, in these peculiar acts, he's identifying himself with his nation. He's entering into their suffering, the suffering that this sinful people will experience. And not only would those in the siege of Jerusalem be affected, so would those who had been taken to exile into Babylon. They would be exposed to the defiling practices of the pagan nations around them. And here symbolized by Ezekiel eating food cooked over human excrement. Verse 13. In this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled foods among the nations where I drive them. So repelled is Ezekiel, the priest, by that prospect. That the Lord relents and allows him to use some dried cow patties, which is still sometimes used as a fuel in many parts of the world. Where did they go? No, well. Now, a third pantomime is recounted in chapter five. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Now, again, this is a picture of Israel's experience. First, it's a depiction of pain and suffering. Think about it before the invention of Gillette Mach 4 razor. I mean, shaving was bad enough, but, but Ezekiel wasn't to use a barber's razor at all. He was to shave with a sword. Now, I can't imagine that. I've got, I don't have a sword. I've got a butcher's knife instead. Think about it. It would be a bloody affair. And Ezekiel, again, stands for Israel. And who's inflicting pain upon Israel? It's the Lord himself. Take a sharp sword to shave your head and your beard, for I will pursue them with a drawn sword. Again, it's the Lord himself who is Israel's enemy. And so Ezekiel here has a kind of double role representing both the Lord wielding the sword and the people suffering as a result of it. And second, you see, this is a picture of the rejection of Israel as God's priestly nation. For priests in Israel were prohibited from shaving their heads like this. It wasn't done. This would be a kind of defrocking of Ezekiel as a priest and of the nation he represents. They would no longer be the royal priests that would represent the Lord among the nations. And third, shaving like this is a picture of extreme mourning and bereavement, especially after a humiliating military defeat. And their defeat was fast approaching. This is what Ezekiel was setting before their eyes. But there's more to it. Shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. Now, I would have had some hair, but I don't have any to spare, actually. So. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all over the city. 
and scatter a third to the winds. For I will pursue them with a, a drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair, tuck them into the fold of your garment, in your belt. Yes, there'll be some who are saved. But, but then, again, take even a few of those and throw them into the fire and burn them up. It's pretty clear what this shows, isn't it? When the Lord executes His judgment on Israel, only a very tiny remnant of the people will survive. A besieged city. A starving and defiled people. A shaved priest with his hair scattered in the wind, burned in the fire. These are the pictures that the prophet sets before the people. Visual aids to help them not just hear the message, but in some sense experience it, feel it. But in case you're not very good at this game of charades, beginning in chapter 5, verse 5, the Lord through the prophet speaks in plain words about what all this means. And two points of this prophetic declaration stand out. First, these words emphasize the seriousness of Israel's sin. Chapter 5, verse 5, this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Now, you could take that as a geographical description. Uh, Israel was centered at the crossroads between the powers of Babylon and Assyria in the east and Egypt and Ethiopia to the west and the south. Israel was and still is at the center of the action in the Middle East. But these words are more properly understood spiritually. You see, Israel was at the center of God's purposes for the world. The Lord had chosen Abraham. The Lord had promised to bless him. And through him, he promised to bring blessing to all the nations. And Israel was chosen to receive God's law and to display his righteousness as a light to the nations. Israel was to show the world what the Lord God was like. But here the Lord says that Israel has not just become like the other nations of the world. Israel has actually become much worse. Verse 6, in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. You have been more unruly than the nations around you. You have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. It's a sad description. And the Lord has had enough. Therefore, he says in verse 8, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem. And here the words are emphatic. Look, the one who is against you, it's me. It is me. I myself am against you, Jerusalem. And I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. You see, it's the honor of the Lord's name that is at stake here. If nations look at Israel and say, this is the people of Yahweh, the Lord. And look at them. They're a miserable people. They're worse than us. I guess that must be what their God is like. You see, that brings shame on the character of God. It denigrates. It dishonors his reputation as a holy and just God. He can stand it no longer. I will protect my own honor, he says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. And from God's perspective, that punishment is not only justified, it is necessary. 
And that public punishment will be severe. You could even call it horrible. This prophetic declaration not only proclaims the seriousness of Israel's sin, it also declares the horror of God's judgment. Just look at what it says. Chapter 5, verse 9, Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children and children will eat their fathers. And I don't think this is figurative language. For this is what happens. This is what happens when a city is besieged and its food and water supplies are cut off. Nothing goes in. Nothing goes out. People resort to cannibalism just to stay alive. Verse 11, therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. Verse 14, I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations who around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in my anger and wrath and stinging rebuke. You see, Israel will be a witness to the nations, both when God blesses and when God judges. Verse 16, when I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts among you and they will leave you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And this is no far off prediction left for some distant future. No, the Lord is is counting to three and he's already at two and nine tenths. Look at what he says in chapter 7. You might want to turn there. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says to the land of Israel. The end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. The end is now upon you and I will unleash my anger against you. Disaster. An unheard of disaster is coming. The end has come. The end has come. It has roused itself against you. It has come. Doom has come upon you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come. The day is near. There is panic, not joy upon the mountains. I am about to outpour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will repay you in accordance with your conduct and the detestable practices among you. Then you will know I, the Lord, is the one who strikes this blow. Now, what are we to make of this? Now, some people hear this and they think that the God of the Bible must be a pretty cruel despot, a bloodthirsty tyrant, a monster. I mean, how could he possibly inflict such severe punishment on people? Now, they may think that. But my response is that the Lord is only doing what he said he would do. See, the lesson is clear. Whether we like it or not, the Lord God means what he says. For you see, when he first gave his law to his people Israel, when he first entered into this covenant relationship with them, he said, do this and you will live. 
Keep my laws, obey my commands, and you'll receive my blessing. And in Leviticus chapter 26, then again in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord laid out the blessings of the covenant if they obeyed. But he also laid out the curses of the covenant if they didn't obey. So if you listen to my voice and respond in faith and you're loyal to me as your God, you will live in a good land, a land of of, of milk and honey. You and your families will prosper. But if you fail to listen. And if you chase after other gods, then be warned, be warned. Listen to these words from Leviticus chapter 26. He says, if you will not, uh, if you will not obey me. If you reject my decrees, if you abhor my laws, if you violate my covenant, then when I cut off your supply of bread, ten women will be able to bake your bread in one oven. They will dole out the bread by weight. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. Or this, Leviticus 26, verse 29. You will eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Verse 22, I will send wild animals against you. They will rob you of your children. You see, Ezekiel's depiction of the horror of God's judgment is simply a repetition of what God had already told them years before. They had been warned. In fact, they'd been, the Lord God had been patient with them for 390 years at least. They knew the choice they were making. They're like children whose parents make a command and then explain the consequences of disobedience. If they refuse to obey and suffer those consequences, they have no one to blame but themselves. The horror of this judgment is something they brought upon themselves. Ezekiel, in chapter 6, verse 10, puts it well. Chapter 6, verse 10. Turn to that. Look at it. Put your finger on it. The Lord says, I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity upon them. I told them what would happen. Now I am doing just what I said I would do. The Lord is true to his word. Now, do you see how fundamental this is to our relationship with God? I mean, it goes back to the very beginning in the garden, doesn't it? The Lord God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Now, of course, the serpent tried to deny it. You will surely not die, he said. God's word can't be trusted. And Adam and Eve believed the devil. They put their trust in themselves rather than in God. And Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and they did die. And we all died with them, cut off from the life of God, destined for the grave. The Lord God means what He says. He does not threaten in vain. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? He lays it out very clearly. Jesus says there is a narrow road that leads to life. And there is a broad road that leads to destruction. Which will you choose? He says that if you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you'll be like a house built on a rock that can withstand any storm. But if you hear these words of mine and don't put them into practice, you'll be like a house built on sand that will eventually fall with a great crash. Which will you choose? In John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
But that passage continues. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he's not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Which will it be? Eternal life or eternal condemnation? Second Thessalonians chapter one, Paul writes, God is just. He will punish those who do not know God, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified. For the wages of sin is death. The Lord God means what he says. He makes good on his promises. And he does not threaten in vain. Now, that may sound frightening. This idea that God really does mean what he says. But I tell you, it doesn't have to be. In fact, I think ultimately it is a source of great hope. In fact, it's our only hope. For those same passages in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy that speak of the horrible punishment that will be afflicted upon the Israelites also say that God offers mercy. He offers mercy when those same people recognize the truth about what they have done and they turn back to Him. There is grace through truth, remember? Leviticus chapter 26, verse 40. But if they will confess their sins and the sins of their fathers, their treachery against me, their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them, so that I sent them into the land of their enemies. Then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Abraham. I will remember the land. I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am Yahweh, the Lord. I will remember my covenant with Abraham. And so it is here with Ezekiel. The Lord speaks of a remnant that will be saved, a faithful few through whom God's saving purposes for the world will continue Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 8, But I will spare some, for some of you will escape the sword when you are scattered among the lands and nations. Then in the nations where you have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me. They will remember how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts which have turned away from me, and by their eyes which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done and for the detestable practices and they will know that I am Yahweh, the Lord. You see, like a loving father, the Lord is grieved by the sins of his people. But as a holy and righteous judge, he will not withhold his punishment. But at the same time, he will not abandon his, his covenant with Abraham. He has promised that through Abraham's seed, he would bring blessing to the whole world. Yet Israel continues to be a rebellious people, stubborn and obstinate. Instead of being a light to the world, they're full of darkness. Instead of displaying the righteousness of God, they're full of sin. But the Lord is faithful. He is true to his word. He fulfills his promises. But he does not threaten in vain. He must judge sin. So what is he to do? 
Ultimately, there is only one thing He can do. He will come. And He will do it Himself. In His Son, Jesus Christ, God Himself will come and fulfill His own covenant promise. In Jesus, the one true Israelite, the true light of the world, the holy and righteous one, He will fulfill His promise and bring blessing to the nations. And when Jesus Christ dies on a cross for our sin, God's mercy and God's justice will meet in perfect harmony. When the judge of all the earth will take upon himself our judgment. And grace 